You are listening to the Burrows of Berea Side Studies. Welcome back to the Burrows of Berea. This is a part two of our side study on who wrote the Gospel of John. And this week we don't have Ralph Hicks. We have Cherry Lewis with us. So say hi, Cherry. Hello. Hi, Cherry. <laughs> we also have Andy Bishop, as always. Hello. Recording here. I'm Rick Welch, and we're here at the uh, Giraffe Studio in beautiful Hendersonville, North Carolina. So as I was talking in our last side study, I'd said that the reason why I got interested in doing, the reason why I want to do this podcast was because there were so many preconceived notions that come with becoming a Christian. Did you notice that yourself, like after you were a Christian for a little while, that did you see that there were certain things already in place for you? Yeah, I did. It's kind of like it was just traditional kind of certain things were just the way they were because they were the way they were. Was there anything that stuck out in your head that, you know, when you started going to school, did you learn anything that that might be traditional that could be incorrect? Anything come to you like that? Or were you just moldable and you were just learning? Well, actually, when I was down there, you had mentioned previously in the— was it last time, I think, maybe about, you know, Jesus being in the grave for three days and how it wasn't possible if he was buried Friday for him to be risen on Sunday, mm-hmm. um, which traditionally, you know, that's what they go by. Sure. But actually, the um, the teacher down there did bring out that if you studied it out enough, it was actually Monday. Wednesday. Well, maybe I'm wrong on the day, but he— he, I yeah. think he did show it was like technically not Sunday. It's been a while, but I, I did think I thought he said Monday. As far as the day that he was crucified or the day that he rose? That he rose. Oh. Yeah. So he thought that it was a Monday. Yeah. Okay. So I've never heard that. I've always heard that the high Sabbath for the year, I think that was the year of Jubilee. I think. I can't remember. Because it was a high Sabbath then you could have a Sabbath day on a weekday. It wasn't just a Saturday. Now, I'm very ignorant on the way all of that stuff works. I've read it. It it confuses me sometimes. I don't even understand how they get their calendar the way they get it. But the Hebrew calendar is based on the moon. And so in Leviticus 23, tells you when they're going to have the feast, which is Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread and Feast of Trumpets and Feast of Booths. And there's all these, you know, there's all these feasts and everything that they go by. But I've learned that those are all just a type or they're a shadow of things to come, like uh, in regard to Christ. I've learned that much, you know. But the the main traditions, the ones that shocked me, like questioning who wrote the Gospel of John, like I never, in my early days, I never would have even considered it. But it's just from reading it so much over and over and over, and then suddenly things start to pop out, and you're like, wait, what's going on? Like, why, why am I believing this? You know, we quote scriptures out of context all the time, all the time. Yeah. Have you ever heard somebody say, like it says in the Bible, cleanliness is next to godliness? Yeah. Find that verse. It's not in there. <laughs> That's interesting. I wonder where that comes from. That was probably a verse that they took, changed it into what they wanted it to say and went with it. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, for me, it's like, it doesn't even match the the gospel at all. I mean, there's you're not going to be clean enough. It's your righteousness is as filthy rags. Now that is one. Your righteousness is as good as a bloody, yeah, tampon. That's what the Bible actually says about your righteousness. You know, 
And so it's like, eh, you know, I don't know. But for me, I just, I love to study. And then when I find something, you know me, I like I hang on something, I'll see something. I'm like, wait, you know, I'm going to hang on to it. I'm going to just pound it out until I figure it out. And this is one of those scenarios that stuck with me for years. That disciple whom Jesus loved, it just it kept bothering me because, Andy, if you grow up in a church, um, if I if they were like, you know, Rick, the one that Jesus loved, like you wouldn't say that, and like in normal, you know, normal cases. Although we all believe that, you know, Jesus loves everyone. Um, he died for everyone. That's the idea. But if you reject him, then what? You know, then what? Does you know? Is he lovingly throwing you into hell? You know, like is that what's happening here? That's a good point. I never really thought about that. That particular twist has never occurred to me. I yeah, mean, I mean, is it conditional or is it unconditional? You don't really think of that being Jesus's role, right? It's just like Jesus blinks out of existence, and Old Testament God appears and throws you in hell. <laughs> like right, you're right. right? Like Isn't that's that... kind of the idea. You're just like, oh, he's not. He's not a part of that. Right. You just give him a pass. Mm -hmm. Until you read in Revelation and you see he's got this white hair and this like eyes like fire and like, he, you know, he's a sword coming out of his mouth. You know, there's there's also like this warrior Jesus that you're not used to. You know, most people are used to the, you know, he's he's soft and he's love. He's like a teddy bear. You know, he's just a big lovey guy. Oh, yeah. Hippie Jesus is all the... <laughs> And I like hippie Jesus, too, for the record. That's the guy you want to think you could be like because that seems like if you could be that patient and as loving as that ideal, that's not even the biblical Jesus, let alone who the hell ever the real man was. <laughs> right. Uh, like, that's the ideal that you feel like, well, like it almost seems attainable and it seems like a good way to be. And mm -hmm. I, you know, but but yeah, that's not even how he is in the Bible. Right. He is very gentle and he's lowly. You know, he he's very humble. And when he comes on the scene, he does not hang out with, you know, the high society. He could have been with the rich. He could have been with the political. He could have been with any of them. But instead, he hung out with fishermen and, you know, fishermen and tax collectors and prostitutes and those that had been demon-possessed that he healed. And you just, you name it. But he had some he had some highly influential people that believed in him too. So, well, I want to go ahead and get into this and wrap up this Lazarus thing. And this is going to take a little bit. We might have to make this a three-part side study. I don't know. There was quite a bit of notes there. But in order to prove that Lazarus is the writer of John, you have to do a lot of backstory. You also have to understand, you could easily put John the Apostle in some of these places. For instance, whenever they go into the upper room for the Last Supper— Jesus says, I have longed to have this private time with you. And he's talking to the disciples. Lazarus wasn't one of the 12. He wasn't. So if he says, I have longed to be with you privately, then how in the world could it be Lazarus? Therefore, it had to be one of the disciples. So then we used to say, well, it's probably John, or it could be James, the less, one of those. But that wasn't enough to deter me. You know, I, I suddenly understood that there was some other people that were surrounding that area that I never really thought about, but I used to question. You remember whenever Jesus, whenever the guys were like, okay, it's time for the Passover. Where, where should we, you know, what should we do? And what did he tell them? Do you remember what he told them? To go into the city and to look for a man that's holding a water pot and then go to him and then he'll take you inside and lead you to the good man of the house and then they will show you where we'll have it. 
there you can prepare it. There's two more people there that are not the disciples. That's the the man with the water pot that led them, that you know shows them. And then there's the good man of the house who owns the home. Who owns the home? So whenever you read about the man with the water pot, does does that intrigue you at all? Did you ever wonder, like, what is that all about? I guess probably just from what I have been taught so far, my take would be, obviously, anybody that's in the Bible is important. But when there's a lack of a name, then it's not necessarily a person so much that's the importance as it is what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. So I never give thought necessarily to the individual themselves, as more so that there must be something that I should be seeing in the whole thing, mm-hmm. excluding making personification with that individual. Have you ever noticed that we can take a verse of Scripture and we can analyze it and analyze it and analyze it? Do you ever analyze the line where it says, and John and Peter prepared the Passover? Have you ever analyzed that, or did you just read it as, John and Peter prepared the Passover? That's how I read it. Right. So sometimes when we read things, we really delve into the meaning of them, and some other things we don't so much. Well, when I read it, I like to look into it deeper and see, is there something more to this? I always feel like, like Ralph said on the last one, the Holy Spirit doesn't waste his breath. If all Scripture is God-breathed, then is he wasting his breath on some of this, or is he not? I mean, this is either the story or it's not. Like that, It's almost like I set out to prove that the Bible was false to start with, and then I couldn't. And then I started really reading into it, maybe too deep, sometimes too deep, which you guys are going to discover tonight. This is going to get really deep. But I had said on the previous side study that I thought that Lazarus could have been one of John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples. It could be that early because John was baptizing near Bethany by the Jordan. And later you find out that Lazarus is from Bethany. Mary, Martha, Lazarus, they're all from Bethany. A lot of things happen in Bethany, this two-mile location right outside of Jerusalem. But then I found out there's a lot of Bethany's and Bethphage. And there's, so I didn't, I couldn't even tell if it was even the same location. So I was like, well, I'm going to have to study that one a little bit further. So I can't really mix those two. Although it says that Andrew was one of John's disciples and Andrew goes and tells Peter. So we know that Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist who moved over into Jesus. So that's unique, but you couldn't really prove that about Lazarus. But there was something that always stuck out to me, and I think I've found the proof that I'm looking for. So this is a a story that we're all very familiar with, okay? It's the rich young ruler. And you've already read this, right? Okay. Love what we talked about. Okay. Well, before I get into that, because I believe that Lazarus is that rich young ruler, because they're in, I think it's Perea, which is not far from Bethany, that's described two miles from uh, Jerusalem. But Lazarus, it's so, it's such an amazing story. If it's really him, you want to talk about Jesus putting a camel through an eye of a needle. Talk about him putting one through an eye of a needle. But before I get into that, I'm going to wrap up a few things from the last one. So um, in Mark 16, 14, I asked the question, did John believe 
with the other disciples. Mark 16, 14. So Jesus is, he says, afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. Okay. This is with this is with the disciples, okay? Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven. Was John the Apostle part of the eleven? You would think so. John the Apostle. James and John were part of the twelve disciples. The reason they're calling them the eleven is because, because Judas, Judas is, is dead. Gone. Yeah. So Peter, James, John, like those three that were really close to him, they were part of the crucial close three, but then also they were part of the twelve disciples. Judas is gone, so he says this to the eleven. Now, according to the Gospel of John, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb first, and then she runs and gets Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, and they're the next ones to arrive. They run up to it. Now, the women have been there, but they've run up to it, right? And it says that the disciple whom Jesus loved stopped, he kneeled, like he ran to it, he kneeled, he looked inside, then Peter went inside, then the disciple whom Jesus loved went inside, and he saw the napkin and he believed. That's what it says. And he's one of the first people to go to the tomb. Okay. Do you remember that? Yeah. Okay. I was just thinking, maybe Ralph said it before. If Lazarus is the one at the tomb with Peter, he's already been risen from the dead. So he's already personally experienced that. So why would he be doubting, I guess? like yeah, he didn't doubt. But I'm saying like, why did he stop, wait, then go in, and then see the napkin, and then believe? Great point. Why would he not want to run into a tomb all of a sudden? He'd already been one. He'd already been in one. Was he afraid of death? I don't think so. But why did he stop? I think it overwhelmed him. I think it would be fair to say that he was overwhelmed, sure. I think if, for him to stop, first of all, he went running up to it, and then he gets there. So what's the excitement? What's the excitement for this disciple? Jesus is risen. Yeah, yeah. He's the, Jesus is alive. So if if it's Lazarus, Lazarus was risen by Jesus. But if Jesus was was murdered and killed, this amazing human being, no matter what you think about him, is dead. Well, it's over unless he can really raise himself, if you think about it. I mean, he did all these amazing things, but he stops, he looks in, he sees the napkin. Remember, I told you that the word was sudarion, or I, I don't know if I, you weren't there in that study, but it's Sudarion. It's the napkin. It's only used by two people, Jesus and Lazarus. That's the only time it's mentioned in the scripture. I mean, they all, people use napkins. But if that's the case, the Shroud of Turin, you've heard of the Shroud of Turin, the th supposedly the thing that covered, it's a fake. And the reason it's a fake is because Jesus had a napkin on his head. He didn't have the whole shroud on him. He had a napkin, you know. But anyway, so according to this in Mark 16, at this, it says, after that, he appeared. So now, when Jesus was risen, this is fifth, uh, Mark 16, 9. Now, when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them that he uh, that had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. But in the book of John, it says that Peter ran up, right? But see, it never said anything about Peter believing, did it? No. I don't think so. No. Nope. So then it says, after that, he appeared in another form unto them as they walked and went into the country, and they went and told it unto the residue, neither believed they them. 
Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. So Jesus himself says he upbraids them for their disbelief. You don't believe, you didn't believe. But according to John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who was at the tomb, looking in the tomb and saw the napkin, believed. That's enough proof for me. That's all I need to say it wasn't John the Apostle. That's all of it. It can't be any of the 11. It's a separate disciple. It's another disciple. It's somebody else. I have some more for you. In this, you could, I guess you could argue the point. You could, you could kind of play the game, I guess, with this one. But if you remember, whenever they're in the boat, after when Jesus is resurrected, and the, Peter says, I go a fishing. You know, and they all go with him. Well, I don't know if I did this in the last study, but I'm just going to say this really quick. So it says, There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. This is John 21, verse 1 through. All right. So it says, And Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee. Who are Who is that? James and John. James and John are the sons of Zebedee. So you got Zebedee, who's her father, and then Salome, who was their mother. But they, James and John, they were called the sons of thunder, or Bionergis, or Bionage. I can't even say the word. Sounds like a like a movie. Yeah, the sons James of and John, the sons of thunder. It would be a it would be a comedy. This would be a time for Ralph to start <laughs> saying it was a NASCAR. You know, <laughs> it's, okay, vaguely NASCAR. All right, yeah. Hey, man, he's part of the Sons of Thunder. <laughs> Does he drive a Ford or a Dodge? So if if the author puts in the Sons of Zebedee and then later says the disciple whom Jesus loved, I guess you could kind of, because they say, well, he was there, whatever. I disagree. He, he calls out the Sons of Zebedee. Separate. Separately. And other disciples. And so I'd said that whenever he and Peter were walking, you know, and then... Jesus tells Peter, this is how you're going to die. And then Peter turns and looks at the disciple whom Jesus loved and said, what about him? I mean, why was he looking at John? So that I put in, in my study, I started trying to figure out why they thought that it was John. Because this, that question seems like there's some indignation in Peter, if you look at it from that perspective. Now there's some jealousy going on, almost like, okay, well, I have to die because I'm following you. So what about this guy? And, you know, Ralph had said, that's just his, you know, humanity. That's just what humanity does. Well, I looked into it, and sure enough, in Matthew 20, 20, uh, Salome, the mother of James and John, comes to Jesus and says, I want you to put my sons, one on each side of you, when you are in your, your throne room in the kingdom. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. You know, it's not mine to give, it's the Father's to give. And then it says that the disciples had indignation. You can go read it in Matthew chapter 20, that they had this indignation towards them, and Jesus explains it further. But it's not it's not hard to imagine that there could have been a little bit of something, but I don't think so. Because Peter, James, and John went everywhere together. Every time Jesus did something unique, like the, the transfiguration on top of the mountain, Peter, James, and John went you know, they were, whenever he was praying, you know, it, that thought of whenever he's praying that Peter, James, and John were there close to him. And so he was praying 
It's the disciple whom Jesus loved. So John is such a unique gospel, and it's very different from the other three synoptics. It's very different. He shows seven major miracles, none of which are in the other gospels. The other gospels don't mention some of the things that he's mentioning. But when I was saying earlier about the rich young ruler, there is something unique about him, okay? And I'm going to bring it out. So let's let's look at the possibility of Lazarus not only being the disciple whom Jesus loved, but also being the rich young ruler. And I think we can put this into a narrative that will that you could you could believe. So in Mark chapter 10, starting with verse 17, this is where we hear about this rich young ruler. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running. <laughs> Just as soon as I read that, I was like, wait, he came running. This is the only gospel that says that, by the way. And kneeled. So I think about the disciple whom Jesus loved that was running to the tomb, and he stooped down to look into it. Listen, this is just words, but it's kind of what I thought of. And asked him, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Let's stop right there for a second. Have you ever thought about what Jesus just said? Yes. Did you question it? Yes. What was your question? I didn't understand it because I thought, well, you're Jesus. You're God in the flesh. You are good. Yeah. Like I, that kind of threw me off. I was like, he recognizes you for who you are. But then, of course, Jesus kind of says, you know, the only one good is God. So I don't know. I'm like, well, is it truly a question to the man or is it a statement that Jesus is saying, you need to recognize God for God. Yeah. Even I mean, though you're referencing uh, me, I guess, you know, Jesus in him in the flesh. It, it threw me off. Of course, I'm not a believer. I think it's widely known if anybody listens. But but it was never—the way I was raised with religion, it was never presented to me that Jesus himself was ineffable. So there's no—there would be no conflict of interest there for me. Jesus was— I don't know how nobody ever put it this way, but Jesus was half God, right? Until mm-hmm. until the point he died. So it was like there's no there was never presented to me a reading in which Jesus himself was perfect and ineffable. It was mm-hmm. just it wasn't that was never presented that mm-hmm. way to me. So it was, there was no conflict there because he was he would have been this other thing that was halfway that was halfway but still human and fallible. Right. Uh, in, yeah. in that way, I think somebody said that in the other thing, but it was just it's just funny because like that that Jesus is perfect reading never heard that in my life. Mm-hmm. Like that's literally new to me as an adult, that yeah. interpretation of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Well, if he see, and it's good that you bring that out because there's a lot of um people that don't know that. Jesus was sinless. The only reason why the sacrifice of his life for our sin worked was because he was the spotless lamb without blemish, without spot, right? He did not sin. He never sinned in his life. Now, you know, before I'm like, really? You know, like when you were a little kid, like, 
you know. Is it one of those things like Jesus didn't sin because Jesus didn't sin, or is it like Jesus didn't sin because by definition anything he does is not sin? Well— It's because it seems like the latter to me, because he struck a child dead, right? No. Okay, there's a biblical story somewhere that I that's might be— That's a pseudepigraphal writing you're reading from, but that's—I've uh, heard it. Okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, so— He also killed a bird and brought a bird back to life in that same book. Yeah, it seems yeah. to me that like some some of these things are— it is not sin because Jesus did it. You know what I mean? And that seems to be the that seems to be the line that gets walked sometimes. Mm-hmm. Almost like uh he sinned, but it was inexcusable because he was Jesus kind of thing. Well, it's sort of like Jesus Jesus would never do it. Was I think the inference is more something like Jesus would never do anything without good reason. Mm-hmm. Therefore, if Jesus did it, you know there was good reason. And if there was good reason and he was Jesus doing it, it was not a sin. That was sort of the suggestion. Sure. God had already written out the moral law prior to Jesus walking the earth. I think if if Jesus had come before the law, then I think everything you just said probably would stand true because there would be nothing to reference from. But because God had already laid this law out, not just the Ten Commandments, but Deuteronomy, the second law, and how... And you had Leviticus, which was all of these laws for the priesthood, and then you've got, what are there, 627 different laws or something that has been written to it. Jesus, when he arrived, had to fulfill all of them. He, he First of all, he couldn't commit a sin, and then he had to fulfill all of the things about himself in order in order to do that. So, so in order to, like, fulfill the, the only one that, or... truthfully, when God wrote his law, the only one that could fulfill it was himself. Period. Right. Yeah. Man could not do it. You, I remember working with a man named Ray Murphy. He used to say, "You cannot legislate morality. You can try, but you cannot legislate it. They will fail." And but that's what laws are. I mean, trying to legislate some form of morality, you know. But that one line struck me. It struck me too when he says, "Why do you call me good?" He's asking him that question. Why do you call me good? There's nothing good but God. Are you saying that I'm God? Right. That's, you know, I kind of thought that. And then I'm like, well, or is he? So so to me, it seemed like it wasn't really so much as a question as it was a statement without saying it. Does that make sense? Yes. I thought he was rebuking him. Don't call me good. Only God's good. That's not, to me, I don't think that's what he's saying at all. Yeah. I think he's saying, hey, do you know who you're talking to? Why are you saying that to me? Do you run around going around saying people are good? There's nothing good but God. But do you think that I'm God? Kind of like when um, Pilate asked him. Um, what is truth? Are Are you a king? Oh, yeah. And he says, thou sayest I'm a king. Mm-hmm. Almost like a like a word twister kind uh-huh. of thing. Uh-huh. Like, are you like admitting to me? Yeah, are you admitting to me? That you think this, or you know, so like the rich young ruler saying to him, are you admitting to me that you know who I am? Yeah. Well, if you think about what what Pilate's saying is, are you a king? Because that's a direct threat. And he said, you say that I'm a king. Okay. My kingdom is not of this world, right? So he's like, like, you guys are giving me this title. I'm telling you my kingdom's not even from here, which is not a threat. That's why he washed his hands and he's like, there's nothing wrong with this guy. You know, it's, if anything, he probably thought he was a crackpot. Right. You know, yeah. but he says, he says to him, you know, I came for the truth. And, and Pilate's like, what is truth? 
I love that line because it's like Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. life. He, he wouldn't know truth if it was, you know, it was standing two feet in front of his face. Yes. <laughs> I've said that many times. But so we get back to the rich young ruler, and he's mistakenly called Jesus good, or he wasn't mistaken. And so he says, you know the commandments, right? Let's read them. Let's read what he says to him. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Now, I used to think that was sort of, oh, really? Mister, you didn't sin. But, you know, it's possible. Listen, Paul said that he he was pretty strong in his faith, and he did not falter very much. Very, very, very few sins in Paul's life. That's the way he saw himself. Um, I think it would be safe to say that this guy's probably kept all of these things. Well, that's what they were taught. Yeah. Follow these, do these. That's right. These are the things that you have to do. I think it's possible. And he says, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. But then listen to this. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. He called him master, too. He did. He loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. The disciples were astonished at him saying that. But Jesus answereth again and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure. (laughs) like super astonished, right? A saying among themselves, who then can be saved? And Jesus looking upon them saith, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say unto him, lo, we have left all and have followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake. And the gospels, but he shall receive in a hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last first. So did you notice that the disciples were astonished at that, about the rich part? Yeah. Had you had you read that before or noticed I, that before? I, I had, but I didn't give it so much thought, I guess, to that they were astonished. Yeah, I mean, but it puts you, if you stop and you read what it says, it puts you in their culture. They were astonished that Jesus was saying, that man isn't going to go to heaven. He's not going to make it. And they're like, what? He, he does throw a loophole in, though, but through the power of God. Yeah. So he, he, makes, it, he makes it not impossible. It is. Right. Yeah. It is it is one of my more liked phrases in the Bible though. About the impossible? Well no, no, no. Uh it's uh about the value of wealth in the afterlife sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean I think that he has we're learning about the culture that they saw these rich rulers, these political people that were in power as the ones that were most likely gonna make it 
when it came to God, and they were just sort of a forgotten thing. They were unimportant. They didn't follow the rules well enough like those guys did. Those guys were, they're, they're the ones that are going to go to heaven. They're the ones that are going to be close to God. This is uh, fascinating to me because I'm used to that through the lens of Catholicism, right? Like that was the problem that created the Reformation and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I didn't realize kind of Judaism that sprang that far back, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, and it does. And so— So you're saying the disciples look at this rich man ruler and are astonished that they're looking upon him, what he has, what he's done— and they're thinking, for sure, this young man would be one that would make it mm -hmm. in reference to looking to themselves, at, that, they're, that they weren't, I guess, to the uh, statue to this man or, you know, financial standing. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that in their culture, they, that's how they saw it. You know, if he truly was the guy that didn't commit any of those sins and he was very wealthy and he um, was a ruler— so if he couldn't get in, no one could get in. Yeah, it's like if that guy's not going to make it, then what about cussing Peter that's out there naked right. fishing? You know, how else he going to get up in there, you know? Right, yeah. It's like Larry the Cable Guy versus Pat Robertson. You know, like you, which one's going to get in? I tell you what, buddy, I, you know, I... <laughs> I think the answer is clearly Larry the Cable Guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dan Whitley, whatever his name is. Is that his name? Yeah, something like that. I always yeah. wondered. God, it just makes me think. Yeah. I, I guess, he's you know. From, yeah, he's from Rhode Island. <laughs> really? Oh, wow. yeah, that's a character. Well, I know it's and a, a good one. He's very good. I mean, and I was good fooled. One. Yeah, no. I As low as that comedy is, it's always been funny to me. But it's, yeah, he's like from Rhode Island, Connecticut. It's one of them. <laughs> I think it's Dan Whitley's his real name. Wow. Yeah. He's really and, funny. When, I love when he talks about going to get some of them edible eating britches. <laughs> he said, <laughs> I got me about six pair of them... Uh, then blueberry, and he said on the way home, he said, I ate like four of them on the way home. He said, you better be glad they wasn't biscuits and gravy flavored. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Edible eating britches. I, don't know, I guess, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. People looking at one another yeah. with assumption that so-and-so must be yeah. going to be in heaven. Of course. They have to be because they do everything right. Yeah. I mean, and I do nothing look right. It, look at it today. Look at it today. <laughs> yeah. look, at the, look at the ones that are wearing the suits and the ties and the nice dress shoes and they, they're prim and proper. And let's look at the women that are in the fanciest dresses and they all, you know, we, I don't judge them because I know a lot of people that dress like that that I love dearly and they are true believers. Right. But there's also some that aren't quite there and it's about that look, you know, and and then on the outside people look at them and they're like, "Man, they must be really something because they're, you know, they go to church and they do all this stuff." <laughs> it's easy to think people you don't know are guiltless kind of, uh -huh. especially if they dress well. You know what I mean? You sure, don't yeah. see them often, you only interact with them on a surface level. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to think that that person is Nice all the time, just because the one time you see them a month, they have, yeah, you right. know, they yeah. they're able to put a smile on. But yeah, you don't know, right? They might, they might be great people. I'm not saying, you know what I mean. I'm not saying they're not. I'm just saying you have no idea. Sure, I mean, I think that for them to be astonished, it's not too far of a stretch. We even have it in our time. We we, we do it ourselves, you know. But Jesus really calls it out. You know, it's easier 
for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And that was a shocking saying to them, you know, and, and Peter made it very clear, look, we've left everything, you know, and he says, oh, not without reward, you haven't. But this young ruler didn't hear any of that. He already ran off at this point or had, you know, left, sadly had left. But I don't think that he was as far away from Christ as you think. I think that he had, he suddenly, he came with the right question. What must I do to get eternal life? This is what I want. This is that one thing. This is what I actually want, to live forever. And he says, look, the only way you're going to live forever is to get rid of all of the other temporary things in your life and then come and pick up your cross. He says that. You got to come with me. I'm going to a cross. And he's like, oh, man, I've got all this stuff, you know? I've got all this stuff. I'm not giving up this stuff. You ever thought? Well, I don't know. I was just thinking, I don't know. When I... When I got saved, it didn't have anything to do with living eternally, I guess. Mm-hmm. I was never, I never really thought much about that part. Uh-huh. Not at all, really. Right. But, I mean, obviously he did because he stated it. Yeah. That he wanted eternal life. What did you think I, about? Yeah, I just thought, just a shambled up mess. Yeah. Just broken. Uh-huh. Like, I, I can remember standing and, uh. Like, I had a conversation with the Lord in my brother-in-law's driveway. You know, he had passed away. Right. And um, I just said, I was like, I've tried everything. That's what I said. I've tried everything. Right. And I have nothing left to try. Like, I don't have, I'm out of ideas. I'm done. I'm broken. This is it. Sure. I have nowhere else to turn to. And never once thought about hell, and I never thought about eternal life. Yeah. I didn't get saved out of fear of hell either. In fact, I don't like the way that they preach that. It irritates me. Trying to scare somebody into heaven is a terrible idea. Thinking that you're saving someone's life from the pit, like they're being dangled over hell, is a. of course it's going to work. It's going to be an emotional thing where people are afraid, but what they don't understand is that they're driving the sin of of actually self-preserving them, you know, like the sin of self-preservation. I don't want to go to hell so bad that I'll do whatever, you know, it's, that's not the reason to be saved. I guess I kind of thought, think of it like, if you're lost, mm-hmm. you don't believe, I mean, you hear about Jesus, you know, but you don't have a personal relationship with him, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, if you don't really think much about him, why are you going to give much thought about hell or anything else, really? Sure. Most people don't even have an understanding of what hell is anyway. They think, well, I'm going to go party down there. Or yeah. I mean, that's whatever, whatever about all that. For me that, you know, what's the enticing part of salvation? Well, first of all, I don't know what it is that you're looking for. I have no clue. Right. But I can tell you of someone that radically changed me. Right. That's it. And I can't do anything further from that. I can tell you about him and I can say, listen, there's something inside you just like the rest of us that's broken. Right. We're not necessarily trying to save you from hell or get you into heaven. We're trying to get Christ in you. If Christ is in you, then you have the hope of glory, whatever that is. Right. Right? So well, when, what's the good news? Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The good news. What's good? The, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What's the good news? Resurrection, you won't die. I mean, 
sometimes I'm like, man, I just want to die. Like, I'm not being suicidal. I'm just tired. I know what you mean. I'm exhausted, yeah. man. <laughs> you ever feel that way? I'm over it. <laughs> like, I'm not, a, I'm not suicidal, but I'm just, I'm tired. Today's like, a good day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm over it down here. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I was listening to a podcast once and they were, they had a friend. Uh, a well-known comedian, Brody Stevens, that that killed himself. And this one dude, his reaction to it was like, one guy was like, he was like fifty, and the other guy was like, man, that's a long time to be exhausted. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> and it's just that that just the way he said that just stuck with me. I was like, yeah. oh, that's it, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, sadly, I know. I think of someone personally, uh, I know like that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a long time to be exhausted. It is. And it, yeah, and it's it's that's dark, but it it. You understand what he meant. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I've had those moments myself, you know, where I'm just like, it's not that I'm at the end of my rope. I'm just terribly depressed. I'm just like, eh, you know, this is, I'm, I'm really tired. Oh, yeah. That's, I, I'm not even that. I'm just like, some days I'm like, God, is this, this seems like a lot of work. I don't even know what I'm getting out of it. <laughs> yeah. It's like facing down, like my company, like sometimes I just <laughs> want to jump off a bridge, you know, because it's like so many problems all the time. And at the end of it, when all of this rat race is done, there's probably going to be a cheese at the end of the maze. You know? <laughs> or it's <laughs> rotten. <laughs> yeah, darn it. I was late. Oh. Limburger. I don't even <laughs> like Limburger. You know? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so Peter... um, Whenever he told Jesus after Jesus went through all this about, you know, the riches and what you can't do, Peter said, you know, but hey, we, we forsook all. But, you know, I remembered that when when Jesus came and asked him, you know, did you catch anything? When he first met Peter, did you catch anything? Peter's like, no, we've toiled all night. And he's like, well, cast the nets on the other side, but we've been out all night. Like, we know what we're doing. He's like, cast it over there. So they cast on the other side and they have this miraculous catch of fishes, right? And then Peter's like, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Like he just saw something amazing. Well, if you are a fisherman, okay, and Jesus comes and says, how you been doing on your business tonight? How'd last night go for your catch? And he's like, man, man, I ain't even got enough to feed my family, much less to earn a living. And he says, well, cast on the other side. And suddenly you get a big injection of capital in your business. It's like, can you imagine, Andy, if you got a phone call from Lady Gaga and she was like, dude, I've, I've heard so much about Giraffe Studio. I have to record at Giraffe Studio. You know? I have no idea how I'd react to that. Disbelief, I'd say. I, I, I would venture to say that your rate per hour would go up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but if you think about it, like... For a small fee. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, sure, you can rent the whole studio for two weeks, you know. But... When that when something that amazing happens and it changes your life, you know, it really does. It puts life in perspective, you know, just for a second. When something amazing like that happens to you, you're like, wow. I know it's so silly to hear, you know, Stillwater's had 65,000 views on YouTube <laughs> during COVID. And I got so many thumbs downs, which that tells me people were watching it. That's what Andy was like. That's a good thing. You know, like. They don't like it. That means they watch the whole thing. What, you know, what do they say? The uh, the opposite of uh, the opposite of love isn't hate; it's apathy. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I knew a guy who said he was an apatheist. <laughs> it didn't. It wasn't that he be didn't believe in God. He just really didn't care. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
brutal. So, you know, Peter got that big injection into it. You know, suddenly he's like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Why wouldn't you go with this guy? I mean, think about it. Right. He understood himself as a simple man. Like, hey, why are you doing this good for somebody like me? Yeah. But he did. The rich young ruler, he told me, he was like, oh, you got to get rid of everything you have if you're going to follow me. The other guys, he gave them everything and then said, come with me. Do you get it? Do you see the difference? It's not that they, like, we like to teach that they forsook all, like, oh, they just left their job and forsook all. Yeah, Matthew did, the tax collector. He certainly did. He took a big risk. But he was hated by the entire nation because he was a sellout for Rome. He was hated. He had nothing better going for him. Right. Right? And then these other fishermen, they get this big injection of capital. They're going. And then the it's it's almost like we think that he just picked a bunch of losers and then turned them into things. He didn't. All, these were men from all walks of life that came and followed him. But every one of them had a lesson to be learned. And it was usually the antithesis of their nature that they had to learn. Like Judas with the money bag. Yeah. You know, like, why would you give the thief the money bag? Well, the same reason why you would give the reed the name rock, because he becomes that. You know, right. when you meet Jesus, you change. Yes. Okay. So let's keep that in mind when you meet the rich young ruler, because he went away sad. Okay. But he's the only other person in scripture that it says Jesus loved. In John 11, it says Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And I said in the last study that Lazarus is the only named man prior to the Pentecost where it says that Jesus loved him. Okay, period. So that, just because it said that, that's what stuck out in my head. Because when I got to the disciple whom Jesus loved, I just started seeing this love, love, love. Like it started following it around. So suddenly I was like, well, wait a minute. So could Lazarus have been rich? Well, let's think about what his sister did. Mary goes in with this ointment, or spike nerd is what it's called. It was a very expensive ointment. And she breaks it, and she pours it on his head, and she weeps, and she wipes off his feet. Jesus says, or, or the disciple Judas actually says, what a waste, it says that it was worth a year's wages, a year's wages. And I've never, you know, I barely give Jesus $400, you know, like $100, like it, you know, right. a year's wages in one fell swoop. Let's just say that they had some money there too. Okay. This was Lazarus, Mary, Martha. So I think it's safe to say that Lazarus comes from a wealthy family. You don't give away a year's wages. And in my opinion, she does it twice because I believe that she is the same person in Luke chapter seven that's in the northern region near Capernaum and Nain whenever that one woman goes into Simon the Pharisee's house and she walks in and she breaks the alabaster jar and puts it on Jesus and then starts wiping his feet with her tears. And Simon the Pharisee says, uh, if he knew what kind of woman this was, he would not let her touch him. Go ahead. Gotcha. Yeah. But if you were to read it, not paying attention to where, location-wise. You'd think it was the same. You would think it was the same story. Yeah, it's not. I thought it was for the longest time. And I couldn't, it used to irritate me because all of the other accounts are in Bethany, but this one is up in Capernaum. It's the northern region of it's well. One also says Simon's house. The other says Mary and Martha. 
Well, they are in Simon's house. Simon the leper. Oh. So in the first one, it's Simon the Pharisee. And then Jesus is invited into his house. This is up in the northern part of Israel. So he gets invited in, and then this woman comes in, and then he gives them the parable of the two debtors. Have you ever heard that parable of the two debtors? I don't think maybe if I heard it, I would remember. It's a but... basic thought. If one man if one man owes you a million dollars and another man owes you 50, and I grant forgiveness to both of them, which one do you think would love me the most? Oh, well, that's a that's that's interesting. Uh, just to be, because my brain is like this is a riddle. Look at it backwards. I want to say the the guy who owed fifty bucks because it depends on your income, right? That fifty dollars could be significantly more meaningful. To yeah, the you right could. Person, you could definitely. I can see where your brain would go there. I just, I just, but my brain the answer was is like, a million dollars. Yeah, you know, the yeah. answer is a million dollars because it's more. You know, the one who's been forgiven more is the one that would be more thankful. And I think when that woman who is a sinner is in there crying and wiping his feet, and he says, uh, you know, he looks at the Pharisee and he's like, listen, if somebody owes me a million dollars or somebody owes me 50 and I forgive them both, who's going to love me more? That was easy for him to understand. Oh, that woman's the sinner. But what he didn't realize is that Simon was the one that really owes him more. He just doesn't know it. That's the backward part. Of the story. No, I, I've never heard that one. No. No? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, and that's that's found, I think, in Luke chapter 7. So, with what happened there, I think it's the same woman early on in her life where she's being forgiven before Mary ends up at his feet later on in Luke chapter 10. Because then he goes to Martha's house, and then Mary is at his feet, and Martha gets all, you know, flustered. You see me up in here working? I'm a church lady up in here working. <laughs> you need to get up in here. You need to help me. Uh, so I think it's the same woman, and I also think it's the same Simon. And here's why. Because anytime you meet Jesus, when I met Jesus, I was a different person than I am today. And after so much time with him, I developed into who I am. And... I think it's safe to say that Mary, I think that that Lazarus' sister Mary is Mary of Magdalena or Mary Magdalene. I wondered. I think they are. It's hard to prove it, but it's hard. In, in my opinion, it's like, that's the same woman. The woman that came in, that's how Simon would have said if he knew what kind of woman she was. Because Mary Magdalene was a sinner. And a lot of times they they mistake that and they say that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute because he called her a sinner. Mary Magdalene was demon-possessed by seven demons. And so you don't know what her sins were, but Jesus forgave her of her sin. In the very next chapter, it says that Mary Magdalene followed along with him and the other women and gave her gave him of her means. It seems to me like Mary is the one that leads Jesus to the household of Martha and Lazarus from up north. And if you follow Jesus' patterns, you know, he goes into Jerusalem, he goes back out, and he goes into Jerusalem, he goes back out. Well, Bethany is two miles from there. Bethany is a close, within close proximity of Jerusalem. It's almost like everybody is gathering and gathering and gathering and then finally gets to this place right before he gets to Jerusalem. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. Everybody's being led there. Now, in chapter 12 of John, Simon the leper has a dinner in his home. 
But guess what? This is what blows my mind. In, in, in the Gospel of John, it says Judas, Simon's son. Yes. <laughs> I have wondered that. I was going to actually ask it's you that. Just same. a few minutes, I was like, is that yes. Judas's dad? Yes, it is. You know, I think I, ac- I asked someone that one time, and they kind of looked at me like I had two heads. People try to separate these characters. Why do they do that? It's in the narrative. And they're like, well, this guy's been studying for 40 years, and yeah. he said that it wasn't, so therefore— Horse malarkey. Read it yourself. <laughs> it's right there. I did. I if it's in all the that. other accounts, in my opinion, Simon the Pharisee was in the northern region. Simon the Pharisee encountered Jesus. After he met with Jesus, Simon the Pharisee got leprosy. He could have. Simon the Pharisee was one of the ten. That came back to thank him. Nope. Is that what you're talking about? The one that came back to thank him was the Samaritan. Okay, yeah. Okay? But I think he could be one of the 10. I think he could have been, but didn't come back and thank him. I don't know. However, the fact is, Simon the leper had a dinner in his home. Okay? It didn't say Simon the leper was a Samaritan, but it did say that Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, was angry when Mary used that. And from that point, it said Satan entered his heart at that moment. This is when Judas realizes that everything that he signed up for is off. Something's wrong here. I thought I was going to be among the superpower. But instead, he's, you know, you you really want to know when Judas got upset? When Jesus put on a towel and wiped the feet of his disciples. It was at that moment for him that he went and talked to the chief priests. That's the moment. It was debasing. If you think about it, didn't he get mad when the girl did it to Jesus? But it really wasn't about debasing herself. It was about that money. But when it came to Jesus, he suddenly realized, wait a minute, this guy's a joke. He's not going to be a Messiah. What is this guy? Do you see? I feel like all of these characters that feel like they're far apart are actually much closer than you realize. I think that it's a small circle of people, but because the books are 2,000 years old, it's hard to know. It's hard to know just how close they were, okay? But, and we're going to wrap up this one right here. One thing that I really want to point out is that whenever... In Luke chapter 10, now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house, that it wasn't Lazarus's house, so Lazarus didn't live there. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus's feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. Mary hath chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Mary has chosen the good part. If you remember in the other Gospels, whenever the woman that was wiping his feet, he says, forever she will be, wherever this Gospel is preached, she will be memorialized for, you know, preparing me for my burial. But it's only in the book of John you find out that it's Mary, Lazarus's sister. That was that person. Did you know that? Well, you're taught they're all the same stories, just in different Gospels. Mm -hmm. So you assume. Yeah. It's Mary 
for sure, because John says, you know, in the Gospel of John, it is Mary. So I guess, you know, it's almost like you just read through them and you just, like if you've read most of the time, you know, when someone, when you when you first get saved, someone will say, start reading in the book of John. Yeah, that's the worst book to start on. Right. Which is not the book that I actually started in, but anyway. Mark should be your first, yeah. um, personally, I think. I got my, I still have my little orange folder from Sammy Lewis. Oh, do you really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think if you read John and you read that first, you just, they all kind of flood together. Once you just read, you just go from one to the next to the next, and you uh-huh. just, you don't pay attention to specifics. Yeah. I always thought Mark would be the best one to start with because it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think to me, that that's the first one. book, the beginning of the gospel. It's like, oh, that's the first one, not Matthew. Matthew wasn't first. Mark was. I think I think it was Mark, then Matthew, then Luke, then John. I think that's how they came out in time, just by the way that I read them. It's almost like Mark, Matthew, Luke, John. I could be wrong, but that's just how it feels when I read them. But I think that... Um, if let, let's let's break this down really, uh, we're going to wrap this up really quick. But this is how I sort of developed it, and I'm going to say it really fast. I saw Lazarus as the rich young ruler. I saw him encountering Jesus and learning that in order to have eternal life, he had to give up all of his things. And I also learned that Jesus said that it's almost impossible for a rich man to enter in. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. But whatever is impossible with man is possible with God. That's the lesson. So then you take that man and let's leave with him for a little bit because we're not follow. You don't know what happens to him, but let's just go back home to Bethany. Let's just go back home to Mary and Martha, right? At this point, Martha's already met him and so has Mary. He went running after him to ask him a question. So Mary's sitting at his feet. Martha's serving him. What must I do to get eternal life? To me, it seems like that was an, an interesting question. Have you ever tried to introduce Jesus to someone in your family before? Look, it's frustrating. It's hard to get a person that you know to become a believer, you know, or to get into it. I, by the way, I stopped. I, I gave up that a long time ago. Now I'm just like, Lord, is this is this the guy today? Like, is this the one? Because <laughs> I'll share it, you know, if that's what you want me to do. Is this the one? That would make sense for why he would call him master. I mean, why else would someone you just randomly don't even know walk up to somebody who's obviously of no high class of any kind, nobody that's in any type of official yeah. role, and ask that person, call a master, and ask them how you're supposed to receive eternal life. That would be almost like just seeing some Joe Blow on the street and be like, hey, I got a question for you. Right. So he's heard of him before. He's had to have. Of course, whether it was through other like Pharisees or other rulers or through his family, but he's heard there's something amazing about this man. Well, I think it would be safe to say that his sister, if she was in fact Mary of Magdala or Magdalena, then she was healed of her seven demons and she came back and she was a different person. Well, look at the um, maniac of Gadara. Yes. If you had a sister like that, yeah. and all of a sudden— She's dressed, clothed, speaking right. You know, you you have been in a personal relationship with this sister. Yeah. Know things that other people's not going to know. And all of a sudden, 360 and she's do you normal. Know, do you know who she's talking about, Andy? The no. maniac of Gadara? No, I do not. Oh, what a beautiful story. What an amazing story. 
Jesus is out on, you know, he just calms the storm in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And the next day, he, and by the way, he's around with all these crowds and he's like, I have to go across the lake. Yep. Not that he was getting away. He said, I must go. I must go. Because he knew he was there. He did. And he got over there and there was a man that was naked that was in the tombs. They tried to chain him up there because he was whack. He was crazy. This big, hairy, crazy, whacked out dude. Yeah, like most biggest, probably schizophrenic. You got it. Person, the worst of the worst, like barking and biting, and they tried to chain him up, and they said they put these heavy fetters on him, and he breaks free of them. Yeah, and he chewed on that, you know, like bit himself and stuff. Right, crazy guy. Jesus comes up to him, and he says to them, the the man looks at him, and he was like, "Go away from me, you son of you know son of God," and he was like. Who are you? What what is your name? That's what Jesus asked the guy. What's your name? And he's like, My name is Legion. For their oh, that's where that comes from. It yeah. doesn't. He doesn't. Um, I think which means a I thousand. Said, by the way, yeah, something along the lines like, What what do we have to do with thee? Or yeah, something what do like we have that? to do with you? Have yeah. you come to put us into the abyss? Yeah. And he's like, What is your name? My name is Legion, Legion. because I there's we, I, are, we are many. <laughs> and then he was like, You know, what are you going to do? You know, and he's like. There's some, then the guy's like, there's some swine over there. Let us go into the swine. And so Jesus cast the demons into the swine and then the swine go down into the, the lake and drown themselves. It's like, it's such a wild story. Imagine, imagine living at home with a sibling with that type of mental disorder. And all of a sudden she walks back in and she's normal. And you say, what happened? And she's like, he did. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh he happened. My neighbors literally have uh, an adult son that's similarly afflicted. Yeah. You'll see him out there sometimes. He doesn't pay anybody any attention, but it's mostly because he just doesn't seem to notice you're there. Yeah. Wow. And he's similarly afflicted, though. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've often wondered if some of these mental illnesses, you know, were demonic. But at the same time, like I said before, I don't know. Like, I— I don't know. It's kind of an odd thing. It feels like this ancient story to me. And it's like, yeah, I, I get it. But if I believe it so much, then I have to believe that demons existed. You know, and for me, it's the, that's one of the hard ones for me to believe. Like I have a hard time with angels and demons for some reason. But I'll share a story one day of uh, of the time that I actually entertained an angel unaware. And there's no other explanation. I have no other explanation because of the timing and because of how soon he was not there. It was the craziest thing. But you'll have to wait till next time. <laughs> <laughs> so here, let's wrap this up. So you've got this rich young ruler. He's he's starting to hear about, you know, this Jesus guy. So he comes up and he talks to him and, you know, and then he, he ends up going back home and he's, oh, what am I going to do or whatever? Now let's fast forward a little bit, and Jesus starts telling the story about the rich man and Lazarus, okay? And was it a parable or was it a true story? And I said it wasn't a parable. I don't think it was a parable. I think it was a true story, but I also think it was prophetic, and it was interesting because the rich man and Lazarus, Andy, I found something so cool, man. This is the coolest thing. Okay. <laughs> Whatever he answers, like his idea of cool and my idea of cool is very different. You know, <laughs> I was trying to be cool, so you. Could... <laughs> yeah, like these birth control glasses that I'm wearing. Oh boy! <laughs> yeah. Guaranteed to never get it. So, 
Uh, where was I? What was what was so cool? Yeah, oh, I don't know. Rich man and Lazarus. Yeah, the rich man okay. and Lazarus. So he says that whenever that Lazarus was laid at the gate of the rich man who fared sumptuously every day, and then um, it says that La- he had sores on him and everything, and that he died, and then also that the rich man died, and so Lazarus was carried up to Abraham's bosom. By the way, the disciple whom Jesus loved rested on Jesus's bosom, and then also you get the rich man who is in hell and he lifts up his eyes and he looks and he was like, please, Abraham, tell Lazarus to go back because I have five brethren, five brethren. And then I started doing some research, man. (laughs) Caiaphas, the high priest at the time when Jesus was there, Caiaphas was the son-in-law of the former high priest, Annas. Okay. Annas had five sons and they would have been his brethren. They were all priests. And the coolest thing is the one right in the middle, you got two, then one, then two, right in the middle is Theophilus. And I was like, what is that? Why does that strike something? In the book of Luke and in the book of Acts, Luke is writing to a man by the name of Theophilus. He was writing to the chief priest. They were real people. I don't know if I can prove this or not. I don't know if I can prove this or not, but I think it might actually be like, it might actually be a parable. It may not be a true story or prophetic. It might actually be that Jesus knew who Caiaphas was and who the brethren were. And he also knew the name of the man that he was going to raise from the dead. Because the end of it, he says, if you don't believe Moses and the prophets, you won't even believe the testimony of a man raised from the dead. Right. Because they didn't. And Caiaphas wanted to kill Lazarus. Remember? Yes. Caiaphas wanted to kill him. Yeah. And Lazarus knew who he was. In my opinion, Lazarus is the disciple whom Jesus loved. But look at this. So this rich man, okay, he ends up becoming destitute because he gets rid of everything. Let's say that let's say that the rich young ruler decided to get rid of everything, right? And then he does. He gets rid of everything. And then he gets sick. And during this whole time, Jesus has heard about this guy. Yeah. Lazarus, he's he's not. He got rid of all of his stuff. <laughs> he's gonna follow you, you know? It said Jesus loved him. He felt compassion, but he loved this man. Something happened to this man when he left. He obviously got rid of everything. In my opinion, this is just opinion, and it's all speculative, but when I read a letter, I want to know who wrote it to me. Yeah. I do. You know, if yeah. somebody, let's say you get a letter from Andy. I mean, do you know Andy's wife's name? No. Okay. Neither do I. No, it's Kristen. So <laughs> if... if if you got a letter from Kristen and she was describing all kinds of things and then said, and then Andy was working in his studio all night, blah, 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 you would be able to put two and two together and be like, oh, I think that might be his wife that wrote me. I don't really know her, but at the end it said Kristen, and so I believe it's Kristen, right? To me, like the the body of a letter, what you're reading in a letter, it's it's important to know who wrote it. It doesn't have to be necessarily if you're learning something. Like if I read the Gettysburg Address and didn't know it was from Lincoln— Eh. It's still interesting. It's interesting. What yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like I would still be like, oh, okay, you know, four score. Totally disinterested in it. <laughs> like I don't know who it's from, so whatever. It's like on Fish Call One. He was like, she is so stupid. She thought the Gettysburg Address is where Lincoln lived. 
<laughs> and then her daughter's name is Portia. Why did he name her after a car? <laughs> That's a good movie. Fish called Wanda. So Lazarus dies. Jesus brings him back to life and he becomes a celebrity. And then the chief priests want to kill him and everything. But I'm going to end it here. If it's not Lazarus, to you, the listener, to you, Cherry Lewis, to you, Andy Bishop, Ralph Hicks, if you're listening, if you don't believe it's Lazarus, then you are just not listening to me. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I would go as far as to say that if you've put forth all of your facts that you have dug up and we choose to believe that it's not Lazarus, we could base that on our own choice. Yes. Of truth being right in front of us. Yes. Not being able to see it. Or being like others who have been taught and taught and taught mm-hmm. and refusing to see it because it has to be this because that's what it says. Sure. Absolutely. And I can do I can definitely do the same thing. I certainly could because I have driven myself mad with this over the last five years. Not just this in particular, but with all the things that I've studied. It's easy to see, you know, to miss the forest for the trees. It really is. And I'm stretching with the rich young ruler. Just so you know, I'm really stretching. And I'm stretching with Mary Magdalene being the sister of Lazarus. And I'm stretching with Simon the Pharisee being Simon the leper and also being the father of Judas. Those are fun theories, though. It, that's well, exactly right. And yeah. I see, like, I see the, I see this beautiful picture of God working with man and doing it in a in a fashion that is, it could be absolutely detrimental. They could die. You know, or they do die. Well, you're not the only one that does that, like I told you. Yeah. That one uh, conference I went to, mm-hmm. she said, you have a woman who has an issue with blood for 12 years. There's a 12-year-old daughter. And then she went into, you know, of course, you know, if you have an issue of blood, you're unclean, can't be around anybody, can't do this, can't do this. Imagine being 12 years of that. At what point in time would your husband possibly, or you, one, decide it's best for you to leave the home because it is then becoming an issue for everyone else involved? And she suggested that they happen to be at the same place seeking Jesus, her, for the healing of her issue of blood, him, because his daughter was sick, and really that was his wife— who stopped him, mm-hmm. and that's why he didn't lose it when she stopped him because right. it was his wife, mm-hmm. and then he went on and healed the daughter. And it says that he took Jairus and his wife up, even though before uh, she wasn't mentioned. I mean, that's a viable thought. I mean, I don't see anything wrong with that. I never, all. you know, I never studied it out. So I don't have. A, I would much rather somebody like that talk to me than somebody like Kenneth and Gloria Copeland and saying, we're going to get $300 million in this ministry this year. I'll be playing that in next week's episode, where during COVID, he said God told him that he's going to make $300 million with this ministry. Garbage. I'm so tired of these prosperity preachers. It drives me crazy. So anyway, we'll join that. We'll we'll do that next time. Thanks for- I look uh, forward to that one. Yeah, I'll play that. I like playing those where they fall from grace. Kenneth Copeland hasn't fallen from grace yet, but one can just, oh, I can taste it. I want to see him collapse. (laughs) I can't stand it. Him and Joel Osteen both. Ugh. 
I can't stand it. And Cherry, Cherry did uh, Cherry. I'm sorry. That's okay. Cherry did a uh, point and wink at uh, Rick <laughs> when he mentioned Joel Osteen. Yeah. Yes. Joel Osteen. Ugh. Well, anyway, thanks, Cherry, for being here, Andy. As thanks. always, thank you. I really appreciate it. Uh, and uh, guys, join us next week. We'll have Billy and Ralph and Cherry and Andy back for finally touching on the resurrection. So thanks for listening to the Burrows of Berea. We'll talk to you guys next time. The idiom, uh, what I was talking about earlier about the three days and three nights, I had said it in the last podcast that if it was a, an exact 72-hour, you know, then if Jesus was buried at 3 p.m. on a Friday or died at 3 p.m. on a Friday and then was buried, say, prior to 6 p.m., that he, at best it was 36 hours in the grave. It, that was half the time that he said he would be because he uses the three days and three nights saying, it makes you think, okay, it has to be that long. So it wasn't three days and three nights. So was he not telling the truth or whatever? But no, I discovered something that three days and three nights is used in the Old Testament. You can find it. It's in scripture and it's an idiom. <clears throat> it's like saying better late than never or bite the bullet. So would that be the same true for Jonah? I don't know. I mean, he said that he was three days and three nights. So possibly maybe Jonah was in the belly of the big fish for... I'm sure it felt like forever. 36 hours, you know. I also believe that Jonah died in the whale, and most people don't believe that. I believe that Jonah actually died because of the language that he uses. And then when he was spit up onto the beach, he was resurrected. To me, that's the sign. The sign wasn't just... It wasn't just the resurrection. He said a wicked and, and an evil and a wicked, adulterous generation sought after a sign, you know, and that whatever the sign really of Jonah is that he went and he preached to Nineveh and they repented. That's the sign. You know, the group that was with Jesus, they had no intention of repenting. They were going to murder him. That was the end of that.